give us the power to build a building on a hill that stands for something in the community. That we're not afraid to stand up for what we believe in and tell the lawmakers and the rulers in this nation and every other nation in the world, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He's coming back and you better repent of your sins or you're going to answer for them. Welcome to Beyond the Walls with Pastor Kerry Gordon of Cornerstone World Outreach in Sioux City, Iowa. Grace flows from heaven from a sent preacher, Ephesians chapter 4. First thing Jesus did when he ascended into heaven after he levitated off the ground in front of folks and went up and received into the clouds, he got to the throne room of heaven. And the Bible tells us that he sat down on the right hand of God. And God the Father gave him all power, all dominion over everything that is. And his first order of business was, the Bible tells us, he gave us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And then he told us why he gave them to us. And amongst the many reasons for why he gave us people that are anointed and called by God to preach the gospel publicly, one of them was the delivery of grace. And this is the series Extra Ecclesium Nulla Salus, which comes from the Latin, outside the church there is no salvation. We've been discussing our call, our command to take dominion. Generosity is something we give to one another. Dominion is something we take together. And it's important that we differentiate between those two. The temptation of the world, the temptation of life, is that you are tricked, just as Adam and Eve were, into living out your existence in what I have coined dysfunctional dominion. That is you taking things and acquiring properties and lands and things and possessions through the prowess of your own intellect and mind and the management of your own finances for yourself. And there are, those, there are layers of deception that Satan uses to keep people in dysfunctional dominion. I'm sure there's been millions of people who have convinced themselves, I'm not doing this for me, I'm doing it for my kids. I'm going to leave them an inheritance. That must make it okay. It's still dysfunctional dominion. And we talked about the angel with a flaming sword that pride goes before fall and that only humility receives the grace of God and that God from the very beginning of the creation narrative when we screwed things up with sin and Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden because they wouldn't get that thing in the center correct there was a tree in the middle the Bible says in the center their lives were in orbit around it and it didn't belong to them they were not supposed to eat of it it wasn't their property and God, being a good parent, was teaching his new children a work ethic. One of the first things that God the Father did for Adam was he taught him to work. And he gave him a work requirement. He said, dress the garden and keep it. Word keep means protect, be on guard, which implies something is outside the perimeter of the garden that wants to get in, it doesn't belong in, and it's your duty to secure it. And while you're about the job of keeping the garden and protecting it, you also need to tend to it, take care of it. And then, it, then God dealt with the issue of private property. In the center is this tree. Don't eat of that tree. You can eat from all of the trees, but that's mine. Don't mess with that. That is not for you. That's for me. So dysfunctional dominion is any time you begin to think that you can take things for yourself that belong or are already designated as the property of God. That certainly applies to the simple message of the tithe. It is not yours. You're not being generous when you give it. Generosity is something people do with themselves. We give to one another, that's generosity. But we take dominion together. And when we 
give the tithe faithfully and we obey the command and keep the property of God, the kingdom of God, as the center focus of our life and stay in orbit around that properly, that is where the blessings come from. And as soon as you replace what belongs to God and try to make it belong to you, what happens is you get ejected out of the garden entirely. You cannot be in the kingdom of God if you are not seeking him first and if he is not dead center. There is no such thing as access to the Garden of Eden when you fool around with what is in the center of it and it, you think it belongs to you and it doesn't. You can't go and partake of things that belong to God. They don't belong to you. And I'll tell you what belongs to God. You know what belongs to God? 100% of your heart. 100% of your affections. All of your love, all of your mind, all of your heart and soul. It belongs to him. And when you start taking your mind and your heart and your soul and thinking that it belongs to you, you're no longer seeking first the kingdom and you can't go in. And God, in that situation, will not tolerate dysfunctional dominion. He is against you. The Bible says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what you see in, in the picture of Adam and Eve being ejected from the Garden of Eden and angels with flaming swords were standing doing what Adam was supposed to have been doing before, guarding and keeping it, right, on the perimeter. That was Adam's job. He didn't do it. The serpent got in, messed with his wife. Adam followed a woman. Never a good idea when you're supposed to be the head of the house. He followed the woman into sin, messed up everything, gets booted out of the garden, and then angels with flaming swords replace him to do the job he wouldn't do. And now their job is to keep him out because since he's yielded under the authority and under the property ownership now of Satan... He's one of Satan's kids, and Satan's kids don't get into the kingdom. And so God resists the proud. Adam had a pride problem. We have no record of him ever saying he was sorry. We have no record of him ever repenting. When we get to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews, when he begins to list the people who are of faith, he skips Adam and Eve and goes to the twin boys, the one who gave the sacrifice correctly, as being the first of faith. And then Enoch comes in. You got Cain and you got Abel, and Abel is mentioned as a hero of faith, and Enoch, who is the seventh from Adam. So we're seeing faith, and it's interesting, Adam and Eve are left off. Well, it's because pride goes before a fall, and we know that God positioned these angels with flaming swords because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And God will not tolerate dysfunctional dominion. It is an offense to him. So if you are living in dysfunctional dominion and you are taking what belongs to God just to heap it upon yourself and all of your stuff is about you and about your family and the kingdom of God is not first priority, it's second or 51st, whichever the case may be. And I've said before, if, if God is in second position, you're the ones that terrify me because you're the hardest to help. Because he'll be in second position, but you're convinced in your own mind that he's in first. So I keep bringing that up because I just I want to alarm you just enough that you can check yourself and make sure you're okay with the Lord. Because I want you to be blessed. That's why. I want you to be blessed and prospered. I want you to take dominion. I need you to. You have to take, we have to take dominion together. I can't just do it alone. I got to have you. We got to together take dominion. Going into all the world, economics, education, religion, political political issues, law issues, entertainment issues. We've got to go into all the way. We've got to take dominion, and we do that together. We're not giving dominion. We're taking dominion. So when we cooperate with the plan of God and we recognize his properties in the center, that's not generosity. 
That's just taking dominion together and doing our job. We're just doing our job. Turn your neighbor and say, do your job. So God resists the proud, and dominion is so important to God. It is why you were made. It is why you're here. He wanted us to take dominion and subdue the earth, fill it up with righteous people. It is so important to him that to do it the way of Adam, that is so offensive to him. You know, every time you, one of the children of Adam, you're a once born, you haven't been twice born, you're still living like a once born in dysfunctional dominion. Every time that you, you go out and you use your property instincts for something other than the kingdom, and the kingdom is not a consideration, it is like scratching God's eyes. He does not like this. So he resists you. He is aggressively opposed to you having dominion that goes beyond a certain period of tolerance. He, he cannot tolerate your dominion very far in history. And therefore, he came up with the concept of physical death. Sin demands it. What is sin? Transgression of the law. We could boil the law down very simply. Transgressing the law of God is refusing to take dominion. It's a very elementary way of saying it. Refusing to take dominion on behalf of and with God. But instead, taking dominion on behalf of yourself. When you do that, see, God said, I'm not going to tolerate this kind of stuff. So Adam and Eve are dysfunctional. And God so hates dysfunctional dominion, he made sure you're going to die because you've sinned. And so the angels with the flaming sword, their job was also to make sure that in the position of dysfunctional dominion, Adam and Eve couldn't sneak back in and eat from a tree called the tree of life. Because had they eaten from the tree of life, they would have never died. And frankly, God would have to tolerate dysfunctional dominion perpetually, and he wasn't willing to do it. So it's essential, it's so important that we understand that we work on behalf of the kingdom, that the kingdom must be the center of our heart. The kingdom must be first. The greatest joy that we have is taking dominion together. That's what God wanted. You know, when he said, fill the world with, we're thinking millions of people, righteous people, and have dominion and subdue the earth, it's pretty obvious he wanted everyone to be in unity together in oneness to establish what he wanted established, together. There was this connection. And so we see really this beautiful picture of, of grace and how there was this interconnectivity and there was supposed to be a leader. Adam was to lead the world with Eve at his side, leading the world as the parents of humanity, faithfully obeying the call to have babies that are once born, and that are righteous. Now, had he not sinned, they wouldn't have had to have been twice born, would they? But because they sinned, God had to respond to the death. He had to respond to the death. And he responded by promising right there in the garden that he was going to send his only son to be a second Adam who would show us how the kingdom comes first, who would show us and demonstrate what it means to take dominion the right way, not the wrong way. Everybody is taking dominion. Whose dominion are you taking? That's the question. And so we get to this beautiful passage of Scripture because death is still here. We still have to deal with it. You're listening to Beyond the Walls with Pastor Kerry Gordon of Cornerstone World Outreach in Sioux City, Iowa. Don't miss the conclusion of this sermon after these messages. 
Our country is no longer in need of a great awakening. America is in need desperately of a resurrection. Now there's a difference between a resurrection and a great awakening. In far too many American churches, the Great Commission has been reduced. The emphasis is on really getting people ready to die. But the church is not here to get people prepared to die so much as we're here to equip people in how to truly live. I've written a new book that talks about this. It's called A Storm, A Message, A Bottle. You can get a copy of the book at beyondthewallsradio.com. God bless you. Welcome back to Beyond the Walls with Pastor Kerry Gordon of Cornerstone World Outreach in Sioux City, Iowa. Check out our website at beyondthewallsradio.com. Thank you for tuning in. I heard a wonderful testimony from my friend Ray Obley this week. His father died. His father was very stubborn. He resisted the gospel Ray's entire life. Ray could not get through to him. But at the last minute, Hours before he left his body and died, with tears running down his cheeks, he repented. And so we still have to deal with death. Julie Strom just passed away not long ago. I think about her a lot every time I see a bus, every time I see the little kids coming in. When I see Tom, I think about Julie. She always sat right back there where Tyler is. That's where Julie sat. She's gone. We still have to deal with death. So how does grace work in a world that's filled with death. And this is important because I remember as a kid, many, many years ago, Pastor Larry taught a sermon series, and it just proves I was paying attention. And I was probably 10, 11, but in the series he was talking about healing, he was talking about God's desire to heal our bodies, and he described, theologically, he described sickness as incipient death. And it really is. Anytime you get the wheezes, the coughs, it's incipient death. Death is working in your body. It's trying to take you down. How does grace work when you're sick? How does grace work when you're hurting? How does grace work on a Sunday morning? We know it's flowing right now. I can feel the presence of God. We know that grace is here. I'm preaching the Bible. It's flowing out of me. It's flowing through you. It's going sideways. It's blessing everyone. The Bible says that it repairs the saints. So you're getting repaired but how does it work? What is it for? There's a lot of confusion about it. People think grace is to cover up their sins. It's not to cover up your sins. It's nothing to do with that. And so we get to a chapter in the Bible that I want to discuss. And when you're about the work of the kingdom, is one of the things that changed after sin, and we're all subject to this still until Christ returns, is God explained to Adam and Eve, okay, you, you messed up dominion, you didn't do it right, so now you're going to have to work really hard and then he turned to the woman and said, childbearing is going to be very painful. Adam's going to have to work hard to produce food. There's going to be weeds. You're going to have to fight the, the ground used to work with you to bless you, and now you're going to have to fight it. Everything's a fight. The dirt's fighting you. The sun's fighting you. The weather's fighting you. Everything's fighting you. Everything's gone hostile now. This is what happens when you don't get dominion right. In the New Testament, when we filter and understand Jesus came to correct something in history, Adam and Eve got us all off track, they messed everything up, and God had to make himself into a person and come back and show us the way Adam should have done it. And so Jesus lived a perfect life without sin, and he gave God all of the glory, and God was his greatest love and the center of his life. He did all the things Adam refused to do. 
And then what makes the story of Christ so spectacular is in his perfection and in his, his sinlessness, he's taken like a lamb led to the slaughter, innocent, having done nothing wrong. And he's murdered as if he's the most vile criminal. And his blood being shed in the state of innocence paid off the debt you owed for all of the wrong things you've done. And yet the scriptures tell us that Jesus was full of grace. And so when we ask the question this morning, how does grace work here when we're still dealing with death and we're coughing and sputtering and limping and we've got all these problems and we're mad at somebody and they're mad at us and everybody's dealing with Adam and Eve, what they did. Yesterday, I think it was yesterday out in the yard, I was with my boys, we were raking because I follow the pattern of Father God. First thing he did with his children is teach them to work. He gave them a job description in the Garden of Eden when they were just fresh. And so I start them out, Molly and I, with our children when they're about two and so I've come up with a couple of jobs. One of them is picking up pine cones. I think that's a good job for a little girl. So usually my girls do it together, and Rachel is learning alongside her older sister to pick up the pine cones and put them in a bucket, and then we throw them away because we don't want them. They hurt the grass, and, they, and they're no fun to step on and all those kinds of things. At the age of three, I started Rachel doing this alongside her sister. And yesterday, her sister wasn't home. And the boys were out raking the pine needles under the big pine tree so that the grass doesn't get poisoned and his needles are so acidic. So we have to rake, rake, rake all the time, keep the lawn looking good. And it's hard work. Pine needle raking is no fun. But the boys are doing it. They weren't really complaining, doing a good job. And had a couple things happen at once. Rachel's in the house. I said, you need to work. She just turned four. I said, you're four now. It's time to work. And you, you can't even imagine the drama. She said, work. I said, yes. I said, the boys are working in the yard, and you, you have to work too. You have to go out and start picking up the pine cones. You know how to do that. But I don't want to pick up the pine cones. I always have help with Ella. So there was this real big dramatic thing. But, you know, if you don't teach your children to work when they're young, I can promise you you're not giving them a work ethic at 16. And my children are learning the joy of finishing a job at the age of two and three. It feels great. God made it that way. Work is a good thing. And then, you know, we celebrate at the end of a raking or pine cone picking upping. And we go up and watch a movie, and, we have, and it just, it's a lot more fun. You feel like you, we, were, we earned this. This is something to look forward to. It's a great feeling. Get it in your kids when they're young. And so I had a couple of things going on, but in the midst of that, you know, I get to get through the girly emotions of it's okay to pick up pine cones. It's a girl job. You can do that without Ella. You know how to do it. And then Jonas, who usually keeps a pretty good attitude, he turned around, and this is a pretty sharp kid. He said, it's all because of Adam and Eve. <laughs> and then he went back to rank, and I said, you're right. That's right. It's their fault. They did it. It is their fault. So even, even my little boy is paying attention. He gets it. This is adamant. If it hadn't been for them, we wouldn't be raking. So here we are, raking pine needles because of Adam and Eve. We're dealing with stuff. Are you dealing with something this morning? If you're dealing with something, put your hand up. Just go ahead. You don't have to say what it is. Look at that. No, keep it up. Keep it. I'm dealing with stuff. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Eve. 
So how does this beautiful grace, dominion, we're, we're taking dominion, well, the idea of hard work and struggle is a part of the fallen world. It doesn't go away. It doesn't go away when you get saved. You can't confess it away. You can't faith it away. Struggle is a part of being human. Faith is not a tool that eliminates the struggle that belongs to a fallen world. It is a tool to help you get through the struggle and be victorious at the end of it. It does not eliminate the struggle. It gives you what you need to get through the struggle. That's what faith is. And grace is the, the blood of Christ flowing in the body of Christ. It's removing the bad things out of your life, and it's nourishing the good things, and it's keeping you healthy and strong so that you can get through stuff. And that's really how grace is working amidst all the pine needles and picking up the pine cones. God is with us in the struggle. And I want to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I've come over the years to love the writings of Adam Clark. Adam Clark started writing his famous commentary. He was the protege of John Wesley about the time of the founding era of the United States. And he began writing notes on some of these verses in the year 1798. And so I find it fascinating when someone in 1798 is describing the very exact same problems we have in the church today with pulpiteering, being too soft and not telling the whole truth so that you get a bigger church. I find it fascinating when I read something in 1798 that they were having to deal with bad preachers, bad pastoring all the way back then. We know this has been true since the Apostle Paul, but sometimes it's just a wake-up call when you read the words of something from hundreds of years ago to realize this really is the human condition, the pine needles, having to rake them up. People have been raking up pine needles for thousands of years. Pine needles just kill everything they hit. You want something to grow under the pine tree, you got to rake them up. That's the way it goes. Thanks, Adam. So go with me because this is the most beautiful thing. I want you to see this. I want, I want you to know that grace is in your life. I want you to understand how God works through the garbage that you deal with. Because everybody has to deal with garbage, all of us. There's a lot of confusion with people that pervert the Bible that tell us that garbage comes from God. That's not true. We know where garbage comes from. Garbage comes from fallen humans, and garbage comes from Satan. And because we live in a world filled with Satan and filled with other humans, we have to put up with this stuff. But it doesn't come from God. And always remember that when you're reading the Bible, that if you filter, if you filter these verses through this hyper-Calvinistic idea that God brought horrible terrors and sufferings upon you, you're really, you're really abusing God's reputation. You're being very unfair to him. It's very unkind. God is not the author of evil. Let's begin reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 because we're answering the question, how does this beautiful, amazing grace of God and my relationship with the church and keeping the church in focus, keeping the kingdom in its proper place, number one, in priority, taking dominion together by financing the ministry, converting our abilities and all the different skills that God's given us as we work throughout the week, converting that into a tool of dominion on behalf of God through the tithe and through the offering, and then being generous one with another. And, and as we go through this relationship in the church, because that's essentially what the church is here for, to preach the gospel, to confront evil, 
and to never back up an inch and to make sure that the law of God has its proper place in the world so that the grace of God can restore and repair and do its beautiful work to get people born the first time so that they can get born the second time. It's all a part of the duty of establishing the kingdom of God. And we're working just like Adam and Eve got booted out of the garden. The work got hard. I'm going to tell you something. It is not easy to be a servant in the kingdom of God. Satan doesn't like you if you're serving God. If the kingdom of God is first in your heart and you're doing things right, he is going to target you. You're going to be attacked. You're going to have to get through bad stuff. It's a part of how this works. And so I'm always a little frustrated when Christians go through really bad stuff. You know, the temptation is to say, God, why could you let this happen to me? And it's not him letting as if he wanted it to happen to you. Of course, he's allowing us in our own dominion to sow and to reap. And so because of sin, there's a lot of stuff that happens because of just sin and because of nature and the problems in the world. It's not like God pulling strings as if, you know, we believe like the pagans do, like the Greeks, that God is moving people around like chess pieces. So that's hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism gets to the extreme of really reducing the idea and concept of God's sovereignty to something as pagan as Greek mythology. It's essentially the same thing, saying that God's moving us all around, making us trip and fall down and bust our nose. And that's just not the nature of God. It's an insult. God is so sovereign and he's so confident in his sovereignty that when he made you in his image and in his likeness, he decided you should be sovereign, which means you're personally responsible for all of your own actions. And he's not making you go do the wrong thing. That's nonsense. We keep ourselves from the danger of hyper-Calvinism when we read these scriptures, and we ask, how is God working in this? Well, he's always there to help you get through it. He's not the cause of it. You might be the cause of it. The devil might be the cause of it. Your mother-in-law might be the cause of it, but God's not the cause of it. In the instance where God does, as an act of judgment against a person, remove his hand of protection because, why? Because they disobey. So ultimately, you have the responsibility. If you offend God so and such that he has to remove his hand of protection, he is not causing evil to, to come upon you. You caused it by disobeying where he, he couldn't be just and keep protecting you from evil. So you pushed him where he's like, okay, fine, and he removes his hand, and then you get pummeled by the devil, and you say, God, why did you let this happen to me? No, you forced him. So take responsibility when bad stuff happens. Don't blame God. When God judges someone or something and judgment comes on individuals or nations, it's not God doing the bad stuff. It's God being just. And the problem is down here with us, the children of Adam and Eve. So we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and a perverted thinking, a perverted theology would read this and and think that God has caused all of these problems just so that you could have the joy of defeating the problems. That, that's the equivalent of me reaching into a trash can, pulling out the five-gallon bucket of the pine cones, and throwing it back under the tree, and then telling my daughters to go pick it up again. So that, that's not good fatherhood. That's provocative. I would not be teaching a good work ethic that leads the children to their own discovery of the great joy of finishing something if after they finished it, I destroy their joy by dumping all the pine cones back out in the grass and then telling them to do it again. Now, I have to completely 
destroyed the entire goal of teaching a work ethic in my children. I would call that satanic fathering, provocative. The Bible says, fathers do not provoke your children to wrath. There is nothing intelligent about doing that with children. That's abusive. But that really is essentially what a hyper-Calvinistic mind thinks God is doing. And I resent it. I reject it completely. It is wrong. It is error.